But as you evolve, and then very specifically as your clients evolve, you realize the game is bigger. Bit of a ground floor of where you used to be and where you are now. I've never truly been hired as a designer ever. Your perspective about what brand is. Quite honestly, I don't even give a shit what it is. As long as it <laughs> it is that thing that you're saying it's meant to be over here, I don't care if it's soft edges, if it's really sharp, if it's circular. Like, no, they're not going to care because it's not ultimately what they should care about. I hope you're in the mood for big brands, big beards, and bigger personalities. Welcome back to Low-Key Legends. I'm Britton Stepetic, where each week I get to bring you an interview with amazing people in the creative and design industry. My guest this week is none other than Bill Kenny, the co-founder and CEO of Focus Labs, a global B2B branding agency. Focus Labs' past clients include Marketo, Salesloft, Braze, Adobe, and Shopify. He is also the Amazon best-selling author behind Conquer Your Rebrand. When he's not working, you can find him running or camping in the woods of Vermont with his family. So without further ado, let's get into it and enjoy this amazing and far-ranging conversation with Bill Kenny. I thought it would be fun to kind of take a step back to kind of telescope out a little bit and talk about what your first job as a designer was and Ooh. get a little bit of a ground floor of where you used to be and where you are now. Wow. Okay. And I love organic questions. Like I love not knowing what your questions are going to be. I actually prefer that. All right. First job as a designer. I've never truly been hired as a designer ever until I started Focus Lab. So any <laughs> job that I reference now, I was not hired as that, but I, I, I turned into that. So if I think about first job as a designer, it makes me think of uh, when I was, I had just moved to Savannah, Georgia. I was going to um, go to SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design. Uh, SCAD's the acronym. Uh, I moved there to get my master's degree. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I want to do yet. I'll just go back to school. And I was working at a vacation rental company. So this is pre-Airbnb. That dates me, but not that that much. Airbnb is not that old. And um, what happened was that owner, uh, the woman that ran the business, there was probably eight or 10 of us in the office answering phones and doing those types of jobs. Um, she realized that I could help. And, and I actually don't even recall. I might have prompted it, but she realized I could help from a design perspective, that I had gone to art school. Um, and so I did the business cards and I got them printed in like a higher quality paper, right? That was like a huge upgrade for a small local the luxury. business like that, right? Like for her, like, oh my God, how did you even know where to like find a vendor to do that? And how'd you get it done so quickly? And oh my God, it looks so good. And then I did the trifold brochure. And then I started updating the website. Um, then I started doing all of the photography for the vacation rental units. Because when I'm updating the website, I'm like, these pictures suck. <laughs> like we definitely need better photos if we want people to be really interested. Uh, and just started doing all of that stuff through like a design eye. And I ultimately ended up becoming a full-time designer, if you will, even though I didn't have a title like that, at that company. And I would say that that's the first time that I was like a true paid designer. Amazing. 
So you went to a proper design school for, for undergrad? Uh, not necessarily, no. I went to University of Tampa, hmm. which is right downtown in Tampa. There's a couple schools there, so people get mixed up. Uh, University of Tampa, I don't know what they would declare themselves as these days. I think it is probably more of a business school, if anything. Uh, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And it wasn't until about my sophomore, junior year, after jumping around on a bunch of different um, kind of degree paths, I'm like, what am I doing? Man, this all sucks. I hate all of this. I just like to draw. Why don't I become an art student? And I think mentally for me, that was like the easy path. What I quickly realized, though, was like that was a very enjoyable path for me, and I really excelled. So my grades went from C's, if not D's, uh, to literally straight A's. I like straight A'd my way through the rest of school and loved it. Um, so then I matured through that learning in school of like, oh, this isn't just my easy path. This is like my passion. This gets me excited. I want to go to class early. I want to stay later. I don't care if it's a three-hour drawing class. I want to stay for four hours. I'm not done yet. Um, so that really opened my mind up to like, there's probably something here as a career, but maybe, maybe getting ahead of your next question, which is like, how the hell does that turn into what I'm doing now? I won't go down the full path yet. But I also realized in school, I don't want to paint and draw all day either. That didn't seem like a viable career path. Uh, and that's where computers come in and graphic design classes come in. And I realized there's this blended world of technology and, and art, if you will. And I really loved that too. And I'm curious when you started Focus Lab and did you meet your partner prior, co-founder, prior to that uh, forming of that business? Yeah, so this is a... It's an interesting story because it, you know, the way things happen is just so random and everyone can relate to that in their own life of how, how they met their life partner or whatever, their spouse or whatever, you know, it's just through these like circumstances that happen. So, so like I said, I end up in Savannah to go back to school. I did not, my financial aid fell through, but I didn't want to go back home. I come from a very small town, a very well-known location, but a very small town. Uh, I grew up on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Oh, no way. Uh, I mean, yeah. Okay. All right. So like, uh, I grew up in Oak Bluffs. Yes. Famous people live there, but when you live there, like really live there and you don't just vacation there, it's small time, right? Like I think my graduating class was like a hundred kids. Um, all that to say, although I, my financial aid fell through as SCAD, I didn't want to go back home to Oak Bluffs, Martha's Vineyard. I was like, I got to stay out in the real world and like find my way through life. I cannot just retreat back home. So I just stayed in Savannah. What happened was I found my way into that job. Literally, I got that job through going to a temp agency. You know, like you go to these places and they're like, can you type? And you have to like type and you take a speed typing test. Um, and they ask you what your interests are or what you went to school for. And they like place you. So they placed me at this vacation rental company. Um, I don't even know why, actually, now that I think about it on the spot. Like it certainly wasn't my typing skills. Either way, they placed me there. Um, because that woman then realized, and I was able to do what I said, start taking over from a design perspective, what she also started to do was tell all her friends locally about me. And her friends were other business owners, realtors, hotel owners. So they were like, oh, shit. Like, you think that guy will do my business cards? Will he do my trifold brochure? Um, will he do my billboard? And it's such a small little town 
because I was even more niche than Savannah. I was on this little island called Tybee Island, which is mm. like right outside of Savannah. I got so much work from that little localized network of um, people referring me around that I couldn't do all the work. So what happens is I go to my little website. Uh, at that point, I was called um, Ideal Design. And my website was like colored pencils and like splattered paint. Cause that's what we do as creatives, right? Like I always pick up colored pencils. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's like what you do, <laughs> not. And I just knew I needed help, but like, <clears throat> who the fuck am I? I don't have a network. I don't have like, you know, Dribble at that point doesn't even exist yet either, right? I don't even know about these things. I'm just a, a random dude and seemingly in a random town. I put on my website, let's be real, like nobody goes to my website. Hmm. looking for web development help and i think specifically at that moment it was like flash help there was a there was a client that i was working with he needed a flash website and there was just no way i was going to be able to fulfill that wouldn't you know this guy eric regan um finds my website finds that little i need help and hits me up fast forward a little bit or or yeah, like it, it would be a fast forward. I didn't immediately respond. I think it was around like Christmas time. I kind of flaked out on it. I think the project was like in limbo. So it wasn't urgent, right? I didn't need to hire somebody in that moment. Like a couple months later, I go back and I'm like, who are those people that responded to that thing? I find Eric's email. He's like, holy shit, I thought you'd never respond. Basically <laughs> at this point, uh, I, I say, hey, would you like to meet at Applebee's? we can meet each other and we can talk about this project and then literally like that's the catalyst from that we don't start focus lab in that dinner but that really spawns everything else so much so that applebee's is still very much like embedded in our internal culture in our job applications um every single every single new job posting we talk about the criteria for the role blah 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 and buried in there in a bullet it says you must mention applebee's in a funny creative way in your actual application that is both an internal cultural event for us it helps us also determine did they, they read it did they read it are they detail oriented and do they have a sense of humor and creativity and how they're going to express applebee's within their application so yeah i meet eric really long story shortened now to i meet eric we have our first date at applebee's uh, and we just really hit it off. Uh, you essentially the the root of that story is designer meets developer. Uh, you talk about different personality styles. It's a full yin and a yang from every perspective, and we were just a perfect kind of coupling. And very soon after that, relatively speaking, a year and a half or so, two years, uh, we we are now like a business, and it has a name, and we're like. We're not. We're no longer working side jobs as we're trying to feather into that reality. Roughly, what year did Focus Labs become Focus Labs? This is also debatable within the business. <laughs> In and around 2009. Okay. Yeah. So we're like, you know, we're 13, 14 years in. We're in that bubble long enough for it to feel like a long time ago. A year after the 2008 kind of recession, things are maybe slightly on the upswing but you were kind of carried through with your creative network through that kind of downturn in the economy. Um, I guess 
when did Dribble enter the picture and what did that do for you as a company? Yeah, so that that is a pivotal moment in time, the Dribble effect and what that had. I, I want to speak to the recessionary point of 2008 too, yeah. though. It's knowing what I know now as a business and at the scale that we are and at the maturity that I am as a business owner, I was none the wiser in that time period of 2008, 2009. There was no like, ooh, there's a recession here. Should we start a thing? There was no reality where I felt an uptick or a downtick in client revenue, income. When you're so small, you're almost unaffected by those things it, it, from like a business perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, those were not even like radar level ish issues. It was like, my rent's $450 a month. Can I just make a little bit of money to pay for that? Yes, I can. Recession doesn't affect that low of a of a scale. You know what I mean? Now, fast forward to today, current moment dynamics absolutely affects a business of 30 people and the size of costs and, and overhead that we have. So I didn't feel any of those things. And that had no regard on us starting a business or not. Okay, so dribble. So so what happens is in those first couple years of us starting focus lab very specifically eric is the developer again i'm the designer and he is really breaking way in the expression engine community which is a, a cms platform a dev god i don't even know how i would describe it accurately because i'm not a developer but it, it, it is a cms tool framework to build within uh, i don't think it's very prevalent anymore but at that point it was up and coming and very well known and he was so embedded in that community and it was such a niche and small community that he was able to kind of like climb the ranks from a perception and mm. like incoming client perspective that what i then realized is like well i need to find my community i see what you being in a tight community is doing for our business you're getting flown out to locations in other states and you're training their dev teams and we're getting the biggest checks we've ever gotten, which we're still only four figure. Um, and I remember the excitement of getting those in the mail. Um, and, and I'm still grateful for those moments, right? I don't laugh at those, uh, but I needed to find my community. It happened to be that Dribble was that. Little did I know how influential that was gonna be to our reach and to our growth, but I just knew I needed something. So I get in Dribble, I get an invite, Stephen Donato, if he watches this, uh, thank you, sir. Uh, he gets me into that about 2012, I think is probably around my first Dribble shot. I really like being vocal socially. You mm. probably see that and are aware of that. And I always enjoyed that even from day one. So I got on Dribble and I beat that drum every day and i posted and i posted and i posted and nobody knows who i am and i've got no followers and i just posted and i posted and i posted and i played the long game if there's anything i have it's like patience and grit i'm not the most intellectual i just said i got all c's and d's right i'm not doing this through brain power i'm doing this through just like i will get like determination um q eagle poster in the background with determination under yeah. the eagle <laughs> uh and I posted and I posted and then I started to see the effect. Oh shit. I'm, man, I'm like, I'm, I'm like gaining a following. Wow. Every time I post, I seem to get more and more likes. We're, we're getting some kind of inbound leads from this. Wow. This thing is actually not just a community to meet other designers. We can turn this into like a, a lead machine. 
And for what it's worth, I do not think that is gaming the system. I know that is not so much a hot topic anymore because there's other hot topics in and around Dribble, yeah. but that was the hot topic back in the day. You're not using this to actually like meet people and like have a community. You're just doing this to get work. Well, yeah, sure. I could do both though. Like it doesn't just exactly. have to be one or the other. <clears throat> so it got so big. In fact, though, there was a point in time where we could attribute over a million dollars a year in closed work coming from Dribble, And we were grateful for that. And even when there were hot topics around Dribble, I never dogged on Dribble. I've gotten a, slightly more vocal on where they've ended up now. And I don't even really care to be dramatic online or even here on that topic. Uh, I'm still eternally grateful for the reach and the exposure that Dribble provided us. Um, so yeah, it, it was huge, man. Like no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, let, me, let me go further. Yeah. That also helped us really begin to hire outside of Savannah. Savannah is a very small market in every way. If you want to talk about clients, if you want to talk about finding talent, yes, there's an art school there. Most of those kids bounce. Hmm. They graduate and they get the hell out of there. Uh, so now that we're on Dribble and we are a part of a community, we have exposure from that perspective. So Charlie Waite, who I believe was about like our fourth hire, he was either fourth or fifth, right in there somewhere. He was living in Alabama and he was a full-time remote team member way back in the day, right? Like 2013 or something. Mm. Um, he would have never known about us if we weren't on Drupal, right? And this guy was stud. He came in there and delivered such a quality of output. And um, I hate to say professionalism. Everybody on the team was professional, but experience is the word that I would be looking for there, right? He had already been running his own kind of freelance gig for a while he comes in and really kind of like levels us up and uh and yeah i mean i don't know if we had to find local talent for all those years i don't we would have been on a slower trajectory both from a lead uh and talent perspective is sharing on dribble still a part of your team culture and everyday process or is that kind of just moved across a variety of different social channels at this point yeah it, it has moved across and it has really now zeroed back in on new platform, which is LinkedIn. Mm. But let's talk about that evolution. So, so yes, as the team grows, you know, this is even pre-teams on Dribble. So then we're all just individual players. There's not even teams. We're all sharing work, sharing work, trying to reference back to Focus Lab. And everybody has this kind of unwritten duty of posting, right? Like this thing is important to our business. Our business feeds all of us. Let's post. Um, so, so we would all do that. But then you start to hit these hurdles of like, does everybody have the time and the energy to post every day or or even slightly less frequently? Some people are, are better socially posting than others. Some people just don't even have the knack or care to do it. So then you have to figure out like, okay, so do we need marketing people? Okay, Bill, I'll, I'll continue to do it. Uh, but maybe you have somebody else on the team can you continue to do it. So you try to come up with a system to keep the activity up. But what happens through that whole timeline is like the platform's changing and I, and even at that point i'm not saying i'm not even saying it's bad but it is changing mm -hmm. um in a way that it it's basically it forces people like me and companies like mine to ask the question is the juice worth the squeeze mm -hmm. it's very simple right it doesn't even mean good or bad no hate casted 
is the juice worth the squeeze? And over time, it started to not be worth the squeeze. Um, and we've just migrated to other platforms. But also, even more specifically, our client and our target is different now, too, even if only because we're aware of it. It might have been the same back then, but we weren't aware. We were very much, I'm speaking for myself, designer in a design community. That's where the line was. Now it's like, no, 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 I'm not talking to the designer. I'm talking to the chief marketing officer. Where do they live? Sure, some of us, some of them found us on Dribble, Marketo being a very specific one. Uh, Sarah, the CMO of Marketo at that point, found us on Dribble, right? That was a huge pivotal project for us and broke us into another category of trust with big B2B tech companies. But really, they live on LinkedIn. So where am I going to spend my time now? Who am I trying to speak to and educate on brand and how we do it? It's really those like those marketing leads. I still love being a part of the design community. This I think this is even an example of being part of yeah. the design community. Um, but as a business owner, I need to be hyper aware again of like what am I trying to achieve and where is my energy most valuable? Um, so yeah, we have migrated over time. And at this point, like, do we, so to come back to your original question, do we still post on there? Yes. It couldn't be more infrequent. <laughs> Dude, right. I, I think I posted the last shot and maybe before that there wasn't a shot for 30 days. It wouldn't surprise me if there was longer than 30 day gaps between shots. We still want to have a place there, but yeah, we've, um, we've moved on. I'm curious about your process around posting slash social and the strategy around that a little bit. Are you working alone on that kind of writing piece or do you have a team to help you share those ideas? So the answer is, is both, but I'll break that down very clearly. First of all, though, like what's the, what's the overarching theme across all aspects of our business and me personally is basically stay top of mind. We have this flywheel that we reference with the team every single quarter. Mm. Um, and we talk about the three points of the flywheel. Uh, and presence is, is basically number one. Right, we, we have to be present in the mind of our customers or nothing else matters. Doesn't matter how good our work is. Doesn't matter how much we grow and evolve. If nobody knows about us. Who gives a shit? Yeah. The presence is like numero uno. And that has been really true for me, at least, even back to those early dribble days. I got to be top of mind. I got I don't need to be the number one shot. I wasn't driven by ego. It was driven by fear, really, of like, no one's going to know about us. No one's going to know about us. How do they know about us? I make sure that I'm in enough places that they can't miss me. They could still decide that I suck or disagree with me. That's cool, but they didn't miss me. Uh, I at least still showed up. So, so that is still true within the organization. Now, to... To go deeper on that, we do have kick-ass people on the team that lead marketing efforts. We have full-time people, and that is their job, creating social content, and even more specifically, a framework of why we share what we share and when and to what ratio. And this year alone, we've gotten better than ever at actually measuring all that and really being super intentional like a well-oiled machine on that front. Having said that, I'm still my own soldier. Mm. All the shit I posted this week on LinkedIn was just all me in the morning going like, what am I going to post today? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that new project launched. I'm going to talk about that project. Oh, right. That book we got featured in. I'm going to talk about that book. I'm going to write it up. So I carve out time in the morning to do those posts. I also run in the morning. 
So what can happen many times is on my run, I'm also trying to figure out what am I going to talk about today? What's going to be interesting? Will people care about that? Is it educational or is it promotional? And trying to like balance that. So, so yeah, we've almost got like the, the double whammy going on. I am my own rogue kind of like social voice mm -hmm. as the founder kind of CEO. And then the company has a very intentional structured setup too. Perfect. So you had mentioned kind of promotional and then kind of news or features. Are there any other high level kind of content buckets that you use as almost like a framework when you're posting or promoting? I don't yet, but I should. Mm. I've, not, I've not made it that structured, but I know I would benefit from that. The thing I try to just continue to remember is like, am I sharing something of value or am I just saying, look at us? Mm. I still do both to be fair, right? Like I know I'm doing both. I'm saying, look at this case study, look at this awesome thing we made, but I at least try to share, this is what we did going into it. I think that what I found this year specifically, the things that resonate the most, and to no surprise, are when you get really vulnerable mm -hmm. and you talk about shit that's even more personal. Um, I shared a picture of like my bedroom from those early days in Savannah, this like shitty little apartment with this, all my um my goodwill furniture in my bedroom and all this stuff and it was basically like this is where it all started don't look at us and think that i've always had this figured out and i'm some special person i was just a dude in a bedroom cranking away and i kind of found my way through it and that really resonated with a lot of people mm -hmm. a case study post is like yeah we see a million of those a day it's just another case study even when i think it's epic Right, so I, I have to balance those things. Um, I, I think I will get better going into next year, having a bit more of a structure and making sure I'm really focused on like education and value mm. delivery. Well, you you did write there a book. There you go. Yeah. Yes. So yes. There is plenty of education and value going on in here. And we'll definitely come back to this, the, the, the book, because that's like a whole conversation in itself. You had mentioned that Focus Labs or Focus Labs slash OD is 30 people altogether. That seems like a pretty good amount of growth uh, from my perspective. So 15-ish years, 13 to 15-ish years. So that's like two people a year. Um, did you see kind of a, a spike or was it kind oh, yeah. of steady progression? So there was a spike. Yeah, for when sure. It kind, it, there, there are multiple spikes. Mm. And I think a lot of businesses go through the same trajectory, which is like flat, rise, you're kind of stuck. You break through that, rise, oh, you're stuck at a new level. And stuck doesn't even mean bad. It's just kind mm -hmm. of you're there. You're like plateau. Uh, the first rise was through dribble, mm. right? So if you want to talk about like year three, all of a sudden we're going from like – God, I don't know, 300,000 in revenue to like a million, right? We're like mm -hmm. tripling revenue at that point, which allows us to be like, shit, we got so much work. We need to hire. We need like not to work in this little tiny room. Our first office was about the size of this bedroom, um, which is not all that big. I don't know, 10 by 10 or something, if it is that. And we had six of us crammed in there. It was in a co-working space. And we had our first kind of rise up where we got up to like maybe 12 people. Right. And that's a lot like doubling yeah. within like a one year, especially as a small company that doesn't really have like an organizational framework and all these other things that really help that type of growth. Um, and then we we're about 12 to 15 for a couple of years, hovered around there. Then we'd like creep up to 2022 and then maybe we'd have some business struggles and we'd be whether it's mm -hmm. people leaving or or us coming back to that, like 
okay, we're back into like 16 or whatever it is. And um, funny enough, it was, it was post COVID that pendulum swung really hard positively. Uh, we got through COVID. Uh, we were about 20 people through COVID, did not have to do any layoffs. We had to do like, everyone has to be on a reduced pay, owners on a significant reduced pay. We all kind of like band together to get through that. And right after COVID, there was so much money injected in the system and everyone was ready to get back to, we got to rebrand, we need this, we need that. There was so much work. We're like, holy crap. I, th I think we got to hire and we really shy away from like leaning into demand because that is mm -hmm. a dangerous, risky proposition. Um, but we felt like we had the business aptitude structure and everything to, to be able to do that. And the risk was lower. So pendulum swung huge. We grew up to like 30, right? You're talking like an addition of like another 10 people over a year and a half to enter this year disaster but the pendulum swings all the way back all the money is dried up government's not pushing any more money out there everyone goes like oh my god free money's gone don't spend a dollar so they're like oh shit hold tight it's it's a bit of a roller coaster the growth cycle but it, it comes in spurts you can divide it down to two people a year but sometimes it feels like no people no people four people no people no people five people i imagine that this growth and that type of exponential growth comes with its own set of unique challenges. What, what did you have to do to kind of evolve as a business leader, evolving from a designer into that role of business leader in order to kind of have the strategies, mindsets, methodologies in order to lead a team of that size when it's not just you and your co-founder, just grit and bearing through all the work? Yeah, grit. In determination poster with eagle that <laughs> yeah. shit only gets you so far yeah. uh i think what we realize even around that 16 to 20 person mark is you you really need the structure you don't have or we didn't have yet uh for us that was more traditional hierarchy right at that point we're still very flat you've got erica's business owner mia's business owner um there's a third business owner now which i'm sure we'll get to in a little bit here um I'm still leading like half the company doing all the one-on-ones. He's doing, you know, like that is not sustainable as people are hungry for their own growth. And there's a million questions that need to be answered on the daily and they're not getting answered because in this example, they're falling to me and I'm not great at actually seeing everything to a finish line. Uh, so frustrations arose. We actually got back from a company retreat and it, it wasn't the vibe that we were expecting or wanting. And my business partner, Eric, was really fantastic from this perspective um which is reading and learning reading and learning reading and learning reading and learning really great and he read a book called traction um oh, you got that book on your desk too yeah. yes yes I, this is from our mutual friend ben johnson at elegant seagulls he said yes. that it changed your perspective around business so i Correct. had to naturally pick it up there you go. You came prepared. I mean, I came prepared with one book. Uh, but, uh, I would say that traction transformed our business much more than this one book that I spent a year to write. Yes. So he, Eric reads traction and he goes, holy shit, dude. I think this book in a very simple, easy to understand way describes all the problems we have. And if we implement what they're saying, it's going to cure nearly everything that we're feeling in this moment uh, of our current team size and makeup. And he was he was 100 right i read the book within like a weekend i'm like 
yo, I agree. So what happens when people read that book is you do one of two things. You either say, I believe in what they're saying and I'm going to implement it myself into the business or you hire an implementer and they basically white glove and implement the system into your business with you over like a year or more. It was so important for us to get it right. And Eric was a huge proponent of this. Let's do it right. Let's get an implementer. We did that. And man, what a effing game changer that was. From day one still to now, the ability for us to be able to be 20 people to get to 30. Yeah, sure. There's a little bit of pain in there, but we're only able to do that because of EOS, which is what is really preached in that book, the entrepreneurial operating system. And it doesn't, it's not really trying to tell you like how to grow. It's not like a scale up book. It's a how to run your business book and why that's important for businesses like mine. I broadly speaking, believe they are run by creatives mm -hmm. myself, right? I'm not a business person. I didn't go get an MBA. I don't even have a, at that point, especially a strong desire to be overly businessy. I want to be a business owner. And sure, I don't want to be naive and um, not be able to run a business well, but I want to be like businessy. Reading that book, it, it gives you a way to do that, essentially. Run your meetings like this. You should have these types of agendas. Oh, that makes sense. You should be doing these types of things. You should have an accountability chart that looks like this. And this is why. And uh, Okay, yeah, sure, we can implement that. Everybody should have a thing that they know that they're accountable for and that they measure. Oh, yeah, sure. It's all these things that when you're in the midst of building a creative business, your number one focus, and it's a it can be a trap for a very long time, it's just turning out the work, man, right? Like mm -hmm. I got a, I got a fucking deliverable on Friday and you got one and you got one and you got one and you're in the tunnel and you stay there. And I think maybe some people I'm guessing stay there literally forever. But then the result of that is like, is what uh, constant pain, constant burnout. <laughs> yeah. No uh, time, lack of, no lack of structure, time. no yeah. free time to think about other things the business should be doing and how it should be growing. Is it performing? Is anybody living in the numbers and even saying like, are we profitable or we just assume we're doing okay because work goes out and checks come in, you know? So like EOS helps solidify a lot of that for creative companies, although they don't pitch themselves as a creative company cure. Uh, I think it was extra helpful for a company like mine. Yeah. Especially not being, you know, MBA people, business people, and maybe being taught some of this prior, just kind of learning through, I guess, like the ring of fire, trial by fire in a way. Exactly. And yeah, just picking up a book that literally guides you through the process of being like a sustainable business that you can grow, you can manage your leadership team and, and essentially have the processes kind of handed to you as long as you do the work because there's Correct. plenty of homework in the book. Yes. It, it really is a perfect guide for that. So a great recommendation for anyone looking for systems, structure, it does give you a guideline of like where you should be kind of budget wise, but I think you can scale that down to your specific needs, like a small yes. and it does a very good job from personal experience. I, I literally couldn't recommend that book any more powerfully than I, than I do to anyone that is in a business that is hitting some of those snags and they're growing like if you're two people you can't use it yet all that stuff in there it's like you're not quite big enough you get to like 15 ish it still might be early for some start reading it start implementing start getting that thing in place it is and has been the most single impactful thing that we've done 
we've done a lot of different things over the years, but that thing came in like a wrecking ball in such a powerfully good way. I'm curious, Bill, the, the breakdown of your team, how many designers versus project managers versus marketing? What What's kind yeah. of the breakdown of Focus Lab and Odie? I'm going to take a stab at it. The mm. numbers won't be exact, but I'll be able to give you a decent representation. Um, so you've got three owners now at the top. So that's three of the 30 you can carve out. Uh, from a design perspective, we're going to be in and around like seven to eight designers in there somewhere. So it's definitely designer heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, we have three dedicated brand strategists. We have three dedicated brand writers. We have three dedicated project managers with a leader over the top of them, um, PM director. And then we also have a creative director over all those other design writer strategist roles I just talked about. So the leadership layer there. Uh, we have operations, which has full-time HR, uh, multiple people actually uh, sitting in those seats. Uh, one really like owning and leading HR. Um, and then Priscilla, who works very closely with her. Uh, so you've got the operational part of the business with a few people in it. Uh, my business partner, Eric, now that we do no development, we kind of like skipped past that, like the business evolved from... <laughs> We do everything to a brand agency and in the middle there there was a lot of development work we did um he no longer does that he he sits very heavily in the operations side of the company and then you also have the growth department right which has like dedicated salespeople um and also marketing wraps into that two full-time marketing people two full-time sales focused people uh who am i missing god i would <laughs> kill myself when this comes out if i've missed somebody but i didn't say names i only said one priscilla exactly out. <laughs> uh so yeah that gives you a general ratio which is what you were looking for perfect and we'll put a pin in that because i think that'll come back when we start to talk about your book because i think it does a fantastic job of breaking down like how you look at projects individually and assembling like the perfect a team for a project uh -huh. but i wanted to slightly pivot into a a, a topic that i'm particularly curious about and I know that you'll have a good answer for, but this this going all in on B2B, what sparked oh. that for you opposed to B2C or any other vertical or industry? We get asked that a, a, a good bet. And I do like this question because it helps me practice my, my soapbox <laughs> of why this matters and why we went there. So it was twofold. It was two worlds aligning for us. The first world was, through Dribble and that platform, that was becoming our primary audience and clientele anyways. Mm. So that system was already forming. Marketo's coming through hiring us. Now we're like way on the radar with all these B2B tech companies because we did Marketo. They all use Marketo. So B2B was becoming a bit of a stronghold for us naturally. We weren't targeting at that point. And then at about year eight or nine, we're starting to ask ourselves, what's our bigger broader vision like who do we really want to be we got to become more niche we can't just serve everybody yes we like the diversity of work coming through but from a business model perspective that's not all that helpful so when we look out there uh and i'm fine to plug other agencies that do great work so red antler is one of them mm. um and you look at them and you say okay well they're definitely b2c if you just look at their portfolio 
right? You say like, okay, we know exactly where they're positioned. We need to be able to answer that for ourselves. We don't want to go battle against them, right? That's like, I'm fine saying that. They're super talented and super powerful. And like, there's just less food for everybody if we're going to go play over there. Why would we do that? So with the natural formation of what was happening with our clients anyways, and us looking at B2B as like a blue ocean to plug another book, um, we was like, that's where we need to go. It's right in front of us. The story's already kind of like written. Let's go there. Let's go to what we considered a more open, viable landscape and one that we could actually begin to conquer with the current portfolio of work and the reach that we had. So it became quite obvious. Um, the only hurdle was, and this only lasted for a second, telling our team that, and especially in those years, we had a team that was really hungry to be working on like B2C brands, right? They're more mm -hmm. tangible. They're real things. We want a shoe company to come through, not another data company. Um, and what, what I told them is like, we can still be creative and do great work and maybe even have more impact in this market because it is drier, staler, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so yeah, here we are. We're, we're in the B2B space and we, we try to shout it as much as we can from the rooftops. In the book, you do a really good job of talking about kind of this vision, but also the, the opportunities of taking that B2C mindset and applying it to b2b and exactly. radically evolving what the space can look like and i mean right. if you look through the focus labs portfolio it is full of kick-ass brands that you would never assume are b2b correct correct it doesn't just have to be oh that's like that's the frumpy uh category it's like no no it's not and if anything it's it's rapidly changing fast Right. So you really, as a, as a business, again, you want to be where the opportunity is. If you just mm -hmm. think from like a designer lens, if it was the old me, I'm like, no, I don't want to be there. I want to be in like, you know, uh, packaging. Mm. Okay. But like, can we run a viable, healthy, sustainable business just being a packaging agency? Yeah, I'm sure there are some. That's just not our path. That wasn't the opportunity that was presented to us, B2B branding was the opportunity that we are now trying to conquer ourselves. I would imagine that as a business owner running, not just Focus Labs, but, mm. but Odie, that you're a pretty busy guy. So I'm curious, how do you balance work and life if you're up in the morning running, doing social posts in the nitty gritty with your team? So this is a twofold question. What's a general breakdown of your role's responsibility throughout the course of the day? And then ultimately, what does that leave you with time-wise to kind of reflect, to relax, unwind with your family, et cetera? So the first thing worth mentioning is I have a really kick-ass team. So it might seem from the outside, wow, that dude must be super busy. I'm just as busy as anybody else on the team, not busier or less busy necessarily on any given day. We're all kind of shoulder to shoulder, divide and conquer, powering through certain tasks. And yes, the tasks are different, but it's not like I have to do everything all the time. And that is a reflection of how great the team is. And that's where hiring comes in, mm -hmm. right? Like how, how you hire and, and, and what do we look for and those types of things. But because of that 
I'm not like running wild every day, but there, you know, we go back to this kind of visual of me mm -hmm. showing the growth patterns of plateaus and these peaks. Um, there are certain periods of that where I could be super busy for whatever particular reason. And then there are certain periods of that where I could be much lighter. So what's a normal day for me look like? Yes. At this point I'm running generally every morning. Uh, then I get back and I try to do a social post because if I don't do those two things early, my opportunity for doing them like kind of starts to fall away, both from interest and just like capacity. Um, then I'll roll into a couple morning meetings most days, whether that's with the executive leadership team, which would be what we would call an L10 per the traction book. Mm -hmm. We're talking about our biggest priorities and issues of the week prior and things we need to tackle and those types of things. Then I get some free space. Uh, again, generally speaking, during the middle of the day to focus on any to-dos, tasks, follow-ups, uh, even stuff like this, podcasts, interviews, things things of that nature, which is important in my role because, again, this is getting us out there top of mind, right? Um, I want to add value here, but I also want to be out there yeah. through this platform. Um, and then the, the end of day is kind of circling back on the, like, do I need to huddle up with anybody? Is there anything that needs to be addressed? Whatever meetings towards the end of the day. But you never really know. Mm. Like in any given week, it could shift depending on is there a certain client project that's really struggling right now or is everybody super chill? There's no fires anywhere. And I find myself with like a, a, a day with no meetings. And I'm like, wow. And what I've really tried to tell my team and especially the, the leaders on the team, if you find yourself with a day with no meetings, like, I'm not going to be mad if you take three hours that day and sit on the couch and literally do nothing, right? Like, you've, you've earned that day. Or take the day off, right? Like, yeah. never mind. Like, but, you know, I don't generally find myself with that. So then I guess your question is, like, work-life balance. We do really good at that as a company from just the simplest guardrails, which is, like, we don't really do much before 9 Eastern, and we don't do much after 5 Eastern. There's never a client meeting. Um outside of those windows unless it's a critical meeting that needs to happen i never expect to see anybody working past five yes if i go in slack a couple of people might be chit-chatting or sharing something and certainly some people might feel like their deliverable warrants a little bit more work but there's no expectation for that so those larger guardrails are there for myself personally i just take it seasonally there are moments within the business that i i am so driven and hungry that I become a workaholic and I like, and I'm, I'm good with it. It comes at the sacrifice of my wife and my son, right? Like they definitely are the ones that would lose on that front, but I really like the get up, right? I mm -hmm. why, maybe why I've decided to do this for the past 13 years and yeah. hopefully next 20. Um, and then there are seasons where I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm burnt. I don't have the energy for it. Like I'm going to try to work less. I'm going to spend more time with them. Uh, last year, I was blessed to be able to take the whole month of August off. Again, that comes down to a kick-ass team. Also, having multiple partners has a big mm -hmm. effect on that, right? Uh, so I took the whole entire month off. Didn't check Slack. Didn't think about emails. And just relaxed. We went camping and just did that. So, yeah, it kind of like it comes in waves. Yeah, the ebbs and flows are, are very yeah. real. And that's business, right? Like you sign up for running a business. As far as I'm concerned, like that's the shit you sign up for. 
and maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I'm too like blue collar, hard work kind of guy. Like maybe there are other people are like, no, no, you build a business that can run itself completely as fast as possible without you. And incrementally every year you do less, less, less. Okay. Yeah. To me, that feels a little bit idealistic and mm. not really my vibe. Yeah. I, I like to have my hands in the, in the work or at least aspects of the, the business itself, instead of just like growing for the sake of either selling it or transitioning completely out of it to right. do something else. I feel like there's an opportunity to be in it, but still do other things, which kind of brings me to another point of why start OD when you had Focus oh. Lab and why is there a big enough delineation and difference between the two to give you a creative freedom or another opportunity to do something new that you weren't doing prior? So you have Focus Lab, 13 years old, because Odie just launched this year, so uh, in February. 13 years old, well-positioned, essentially from like a Series A to Series D level company. Uh, we still work infrequently, but we still work with publicly traded companies. But really, the bulk of the clientele is in that spectrum, which means they warrant a certain scope of work, which is mm. larger than OD clients which then therefore comes with a timeline that is much longer and then a cost associated that is much higher. Where OD clients, so OD um, is really meant to serve like pre-seed, seed stage. So really that traditional startup moment. Now you get these big companies call themselves startups, but really a startup, <laughs> like we're like three people in a dorm room, we like started a thing uh, and we're trying to fundraise past the seed stage. Um, our offering for them is much smaller, much more agile and a lot cheaper. So that alone is the delineate, the only line in the sand delineation that you need to say, can we have two separate offerings? Yes, we can. Um, but why would we choose to do that? That is also a business model, um, decision. Mm. What you, what we don't want to do and what I don't think people should do is become this giant, all-consuming, we do everything mega agency. I think that becomes really hard for the customer base to decide what you're great at, uh, why they should hire you, uh, what they're truly gonna get, and just understanding and feeling maybe more related to the brand, if you will, yeah, our brands being a match for them. So if someone comes to Focus Lab and they only have $10,000, they already feel like the peasant on the street. That's not a way you want to enter a project. Mm -hmm. They come to Odie and Odie is built to meet them where they are and feels relatable and like an ally to them on a one-to-one. -one. Well, yeah, we, that's all we expect you to have, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're going to be able to, to do this, this, and this. And I, we did that for the last client for the same price. Uh, 10,000 arbitrary number. I don't want to price pin myself there. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yes, it, it matters. And, and you know, we really learned that. You see that out in the market a lot, um, which is the, some people go this route, mega agency or mega business mm -hmm. or separate brands, separate brands, separate brands. When we were growing through the years, it was about year five, year six, we got an appetite for like, how do we diversify our revenue? I think every agency goes through this. Uh, we need some passive revenue. So it's not always just inbound leads creating new revenue for us. So we built um, like our store and we called it Sidecar. 
And Sidecar is where we sold assets like photography packages and icon sets and typography sets and style guide templates and all those things. So that was creating a little bit of revenue, but somebody has to like, who's going to watch that? Mm -hmm. Who's going to create the new things? Who's the owner of that? Well, shit, we're only 15 people. Like we're not big enough to have somebody own it. Um, so I guess it's just this like back burner thing and we'll get to it when we can. That's not great. Uh, then we started to build our own a la the base camp kind of trajectory of agency builds product and just becomes product and ditches agency. We started to build a, a proposal tool because all the proposals that we would send out uh, at that point where I think, God, they might've still been in like Google docs and shit. I don't even remember. Um, but we need an online digital tool for that. And the, the tools that were in the market at that point looked terrible and they were bloated and we still had dev chops. Um, and we always had design chops. So we're like, well, we can just like build it, design it ourselves. And we did, and we brought it all the way to market and had paying customers. But then you're left with the question again, shit, who's going to own that? Oh, there's a bug. Oh, Oh God, this, oh shit, we don't have time for this. So we, we kept trying to do this like growth and becoming a different, a bunch of different things. And it never really worked out. And we committed to this idea that we're never going to do that again. So when it came time to start Odie, it was not even a question for us, even though it was more similar than those other two examples. It wasn't even a question for us if we were just going to, well, let's just serve different markets from Focus Lab. No, that's confusing. Mm -hmm. Let's be the best at this and let's build this thing to be the best at that. And, and what that does too, it allows you to create a, a appropriate divide between team. What team am I on? What things should I care about and be trying to better instead of like this really big task switching that might happen of like, well, if I'm over here, I do this process. If I'm over here, I do that process. There's still some of that. I don't want to paint a picture like we don't do any of that, but it does help again to delineate both of those things so that's a very long answer to that's why we did that, <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's perfect because i wanted to know about the, the, the delineation and how many people are at od are they still technically in the focus lab family and how does how does that kind of symbiotic relationship happen yeah yeah uh, we're working through that right now what I can tell you is there is a parent brand that is not public yet mm. that allows us to house all of this in a more kind of like digestible, understandable way. Where essentially Focus Lab and, and Odie are, are children of a parent and they all work off of the same core values. They generally speaking have the same larger mission and vision and then their own more specific niche vision and missions. We still so at the so as everything transitions to the parent level, yes, we'll all be in the same Slack. Yes, we'll all go to the same retreats because we all work for the same parent company, even though our day-to-day -day deliverables might look different because they're serving different clients. Um the team is 99% focus lab players at this point. Odie is still so new, it doesn't need a giant team, not to mention it can also pull from a shared resource of hr and operations and those things don't those don't i'm getting deep into business model now but those don't need to be at the child level they're at the parent level right so again at this point od needs designers and pms mm -hmm. but it can't grow until the market shifts and gets busier so it's enough to sustain what we've built but it's going to take time to grow that to a point where there are really larger distinct pods 
of teams. Gotcha. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And this is a question you don't have to answer, but I think it's interesting and I'd like to hear your perspective and it might help someone else. Um, is your thoughts on the market at the moment and where it might go, whether it's positive or negative. I've had many conversations with creative teams and they've all noticed the stagnation in the market. I found a little bit of pickup recently. I don't know if mm -hmm. that, so if that is a trend, that's a good trend, but uh, yeah. curious your thoughts and perspective about where it's going and what we could maybe prepare for in the next coming months. Yeah. Sure wish I knew that answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you <laughs> I'll give you my maybe hopeful and mm. practical theory. I I thought when we entered the year by now we would have pushed through the mud. We are just starting to see signs of that. So what's the first sign? The first sign is incoming pipeline leads. Mm -hmm. And this is something per EOS we measure on a scorecard every single week. Every single week, we know how many leads came through, how many leads came through, how many leads. And then we have a target and we mark them red or green in the cells of this Google Sheet. And so we can see the trend clear as day. And then all of a sudden, like, bing, green. Wow, hadn't seen that type of number since like December. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know there's a shift in the market at that point. Then you ask yourself, is it sustainable? Since we measure it every week, we're able to see. Mm. Is, is it sustaining? Is it sustaining? And it did, and it did, and it did. But then it ticks down. But then it ticks right back up. Mm -hmm. So all those are good indicators, but you still need all the other shit to be true. Okay, yeah, there's more leads. They're still taking forever to close. Yeah. Right. So then it's like, okay, that's the next hurdle. Then can we close them on a shorter sales cycle? Can we get people to commit and not be so nervous to spend a dollar? Those things are still TBD. So our team knows that basically the rest of this year is basically more the same, although there are some positive indicators. I suspect that a new year psychologically is good for everybody, even the market. So mm -hmm. I think we will get some psychological shift that happens when we enter January and we all say it's a new year. Yeah. But there's still the embedded hardcore economics of the world and the country that will exist beyond psychology. And I, it could be just the longest slowest grind back up but anything upward is enough to keep the momentum going and like okay 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 um so i i think entering the new year i have hope that we'll start to see the change you see it in some of the sentiment the changes there but then there's always the doomsdayers out there right you know like you're on twitter and i happen to follow a bunch of like finance fake finance good finance yeah. people whatever you know and everything is like the recession's coming it's definitely coming next year so you you know what it feels like it feels like you're walking down in like this scary movie you're in a haunted house and there's all these soldiers with axes yeah and like you're like walking and you're like one of these fucking guys is gonna drop the axe but i like i don't know where it is and you're like how many more guys do i need to pass i kind of <laughs> wish the recession already happened like yeah. can we just get it over with why are we like how long can we sustain and just kind of live in this kind of moment but when you do what you do right mm -hmm. you, you grind and you grind and you grind you get super active on social so whatever work is out there you are top of mind and they don't mm -hmm. miss you um 
you continue to prepare your team mentally for it's going to be challenging, but you know, we'll get through it in these ways. And, but you try to keep it very real with them, but that, I guess, you know, to some degree, that's what you sign up for, you know, um, Eric, my business partner, and we still haven't talked about will yet. Yo, will, I know you're a business partner too. Uh, Eric shared something with me about midpoint in the year. And it was helpful for me mentally. He's like, I was reading this finance book and it basically said every business out of 10 years is going to have, like uh, six okay, good, good to okay years, um, two to three like challenging years, and one year that almost puts you out of business. Now the last, <laughs> yeah, the last one is like fairly dramatic, but it's enlightening to see the ratio because I think mm -hmm. it's important for people like myself or even solopreneur freelancers to remember like these things are moments in time, but when you're living them, they feel like a lifetime. You're just waiting to get to the other side of it. Uh, and then really reminding us to really relish those three to five year runs that a business can have where everything is fairly stable and it's only up and to the right. <laughs> it's <a> beautiful time. <laughs> yes. Those are good times. When I get back to those, I'm going to be like, I love every day. Yeah. Every day is a celebration. And it seems like you've had a really, I guess, early start at remote work with mm -hmm. your kind of first remote member in Alabama. So you kind of had a head start on a lot of people. How much of the agency is remote currently to this day versus in the studio in Savannah? Easy answer, 100% remote. Oh, uh, there, there is no studio in Savannah anymore. Um, we've been out of that really since COVID. Mm. And then uh, technically we've been out of the lease for, I don't know, like a year or something. So, but coming back, there's another point I want to make about being remote. So I talked about Charlie, yep. shout out to Charlie, uh, big wig at Uber now. Uh, and he was the fourth team member, like I said, fully remote, but I also left the office in Savannah very early on, maybe like year three, mm. two and a half, right? So for like over a decade. I've not worked with the team in person for over a decade. Uh, wow. I met my wife and she lived in New Jersey, which is where I'm at now. And it was easier for me to move than it was for her to come down. Uh, Eric was very supportive in that. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> Yo, you're losing a business partner. We're still a very young, early business. And we just got this awesome big office. I'm out, dude. Uh, he supported that effort. And I've been working here ever since. So all that to say, yes, we've been so remote friendly and focused for so long that by the time COVID hits, it has little to no bearing from a client perspective. None mm -hmm. of our clients are local. They hadn't been basically since year three or two. Uh, everything we did was via Zoom at that point. All of our deliverables were already shipped um, through Basecamp and all these other tools. The only effect it had, which I didn't feel because I wasn't there, is that in-office cultural effect. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it's fair for me to speak to, but I guess I'll shine a little bit of light. I still think that only affected some people. Other people were like, yeah, cool. I, I still love everybody. I'll still see them, but I don't need to be in the office every day. I quite like working from home. And there were definitely a couple of people that were like, oh, I want to be in an office both because I love it and, my, and because my kids are young and I don't really have a great setup at home. And this is really going to be challenging. Besides that dynamic, it was not a big model shift for us. Uh, which is why we just leaned fully in. There was no reason for us to go back. So yeah, 100% remote. We don't 
We don't have a headquarters, if you will. <laughs> so we should probably talk about Will since we <laughs> mentioned like five different times, but maybe we'll just keep it as like a secret Easter egg. You have to really know Will. Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. and to, to know him is to know him. Uh, I can give a little bit of background I, um, really quickly. And if you want to kind of pull other questions out of that. So how does one end up with a third partner when you start with two? Great question. Um, what happened was Will joined our team as uh, a full-time dedicated salesperson. He was the first. We never had that before. Now you want to talk about another circumstantial, like how you meet somebody and start a thing together. Will, we had no job posting out. We had actually just gone through uh, a challenging period in our business. Uh, at that point, that was only the that was the first time we ever had to let people go. A couple months later, the pendulum swung back really fast, unlike this year. And um, all of a sudden, we're like, "Shit!" We're, we're like, "We do need staff." And Eric and I can't take sales calls anymore. Mm. It's just it's maybe not even our strength, and certainly not the best use of our time. At that point, I'm still designing heavily. Um, so Will straight up cold emails us, "Hey, just moved to town." Never even worked in this type of um, kind of creative environment before. Uh, come from a different background, but it is sales driven and uh, it looked like a cool culture. And that's all I'm looking for. <laughs> Eric says, sure, come in. I wasn't even in the office anymore. Eric says, come in, let's chat. We decide Will is the right person to be the face of the company from a sales perspective. He's tattooed up, <laughs> really, really funny, really personable, very down to earth, really quick. Uh, and he takes off as our first salesperson in year over year, uh, comes to the point where he says, you know what, I've always, I've always thought I wanted to own my own business, but what I've come to realize is I just want to be a business owner and I'd like to be a part of this business. Uh. And we're like, great, like, let's talk. Mm. We've always been very open to kind of like ideas as an organization. So we chatted and the rest is history. So Will's been a, a partner now for. God, it feels like a long time, five years or something. I don't know. That number might be off. Wow. That's amazing. Grabbing a third partner kind of the that many years in, but just kind of as you grow and scale, you need kind of more people, more tools in the tool belt, if you will, to kind of keep evolving and never staying stagnant. That's right. Yeah. I think we are very much a like team and people first company. And I know a lot of companies say that and doesn't mean that they're lying. But so much so that we're not like, you know, Eric and I specifically, you know, we're not like trying to hold the whole thing as our own and it's like mm -hmm. it's my baby and nobody else can have any say right so it makes it easier when you're trying to think about can we have a partner i'm like yeah whatever he's going to bring value and like be a, a kick-ass human to be around great let's roll we did want to make sure like are you bringing additional value beyond the yin yang i talked about earlier mm -hmm. right like yeah how are you different than just eric and i and he is different than eric and i so at this point we have like a triangle essentially mm -hmm. um which is it's been fantastic he's done a kick-ass job and uh he really he has a knack for how he inspires and motivates the team but also like through through like um, not taking himself too seriously too which is is the right way for our culture that's probably the perfect third edition so that you're all balanced out in this kind of triforce of creativity yes yeah yeah it's it's a great addition and now we divide and conquer and there are other leaders in the company too right that are not founders that still have that same effect very much a divide and conquer uh, i preach to the team a lot like listen i'm no bigger better than any one of you yes i happen to have like the owner title 
I'm just doing work just like you. I think now is a perfect opportunity to, to dive into your book a little bit. Yeah, and, let's talk about it. Yeah, I, because I actually really do love it. I read it. I've enjoyed it. I have all my sticky tabs and notes. But um, I think first off, we have to talk about what made you want to write a book? And maybe even more importantly is when did you discover or be were you told that you were a good writer because the writing is super solid it has i've never been told you are a good writer bill you get an a on that yes it, it's personal it, it's real it's super easy to to digest i would assume that the target audience is those b2b leaders but i think the sub audience is definitely if you do have a design practice this could give you some tools from the focus labs tool belt to help you to kind of understand maybe a new perspective or evolve your own that's correct yeah you nailed it it, it is those two audiences i knew that the design audience agency owner kind of audience would be a really big sub audience it's like the sub audience but it it is such a big reach from all those years dribble and all that for us that mm -hmm. i knew it would be a big buyer of the book um thank you for the the writing praise i i have to uh, make sure to pass that praise as well beyond me so yes i did a fair amount of the writing but i did work with a company uh the company is called scribe media mm. which is a whole nother conversation about the struggles they've gone through as of late getting down into bankruptcy and having some crazy stuff happening at the top of the business that almost left my book in peril. Um, like it almost didn't come out because it was still wrapped up in whatever their business issues were because it wasn't launched yet, but it did launch. Hallelujah. But through working with them, I had an awesome guy named Dave that I was working with who is a scribe, right? His job is essentially to write the book with me. Mm. So Dave and I worked very closely in determining what the chapter flow should be and, and really writing through all the content. And Dave would take first stab and I'd come behind it and I'd be like, uh, it doesn't sound like the way I would write that. Let me, I'm going to kind of rewrite this and rewrite that shit. I just went back through and did the whole chapter because I just, it was bugging me so much. Dave, now can you go through it and make it sound better than my elementary writing? So it was very much a shared um, kind of job on that front. Further, I had very specific people in the organization reading through particular chapters giving their perspectives changing certain points to be more accurate even because i'm like for instance i'm not in the strategy department every day i can only speak so well about the strategy efforts at focus lab even though i'm a founder so um so it wasn't all me but i will take credit for the fact that i did spend a year on it i wrote a lion share in that freaking book and it was really important for me that the voice was human easy to understand practical so all that stuff that you shared what it was really what i was trying to get at so so yay team yay me thank you dave for the support uh it took about a year mm. is how long that process took uh the beginning seemed to go really fast it's like a, it was like the marathon First couple miles, I haven't run one yet. Um, uh, first couple miles feel okay. The last couple miles feel the worst. It's kind of what it felt like. By the time it was the end and it was like my final read, final chance to catch a spelling error, I could almost not even get myself to read through it. 
I was like, I don't know if I can read this whole thing again. I spent so much freaking time on it. I, I just got to get it away from me. I got to ship it. So um, very rewarding, though. I'm happy it's out. I'm happy it's being received well from both parties. Mm. I got my first one-star review out of the way. That's success. <laughs> I knew that shit was coming. And oh, it came. Sorry. And it was a great one. Uh, go to Amazon. Check that out. Peppermill is the name. It's a fantastic one-star review from, a, I believe it's a fellow in Australia. And uh, yeah, it's been great. It's been cool. That's awesome. Uh, we've been talking a, a ton about brand, but I wanted to kick things off uh, by reading from your book, your perspective about what brand is. And this is what I highlighted and what I really liked. So your brand is the entire ecosystem around your company that leads to a feeling of perception in the eyes or hearts of your customers. And I thought that that was a beautiful way to look at brand because I think it is like a hot kind of topic within the design community, if you will, about like a group of designers focusing on brand as a logo or identity system that they produce and tend to ignore the business culture, the culture of the audience. And I love the, the phrasing ecosystem that leads to the feeling or perception in the eyes or hearts of the customers so that it's a, in a way, a tangible feeling within you, that perception that, that triggers the cue that this is the brand and I feel this way about it. So it is this. What's important to understand there is like, what that is almost saying is like, nobody can even say what brand is. And I think that's right. Cause it's different to every single person. If you look at a nostalgic Nike box, you might get a completely different feeling from the brand in that setting than I do. If you look at the Disney logo or somebody on my team walks into the Disney theme park, right? They get different feelings of that brand as it relates to them. So it can't be a single element and it can't be a single thread. It has to be an ecosystem because they're the variables are too wide on both sides of the spectrum. So that's all really what I was trying to get across there. But what happens is that becomes so big and so gray. And it's like, well, how do you nail it down? And how do you define the ROI and all this other shit? You're like, oh, yeah, I know. Tough. It's tough. Yeah. How does one kind of, in a way, orchestrate the right feeling of a brand and try to put the right perception into the eyes of the client or at least kind of flip a script so that they can start to see themselves in that perception. I guess it's more important for the the audience, but when you're pitching to a client that they need to kind of be focused in on a certain perception of their brand, how would you kind of help them to position or see this new perspective around their kind of future forward brand? Yeah, the perception bit is so huge. Um you want to be perceived as as a thing and everybody has a general idea of how they want to be perceived do you want to be perceived as overly trusted and super secure do you want to be perceived as really open and carefree and fun do you want to be perceived as as easy to use is that more important or is sophisticated and robust more of the perception you're going after so then it's like you figure that out and then you have to figure out what you think might do that because it is what you think, right? With mm. our help, it's still a think. Okay, if we want to be 
perceived as robust and highly technical, then maybe the color palette's going to be like pretty dark, potentially, right? With some blacks uh, in, in, in those types of decisions. Or if we want to be really open and airy and we want to feel approachable and easy to use and we don't have a lot of things going on everywhere, elements, right? We have a visual language that is more subtle in the delivery of what it's trying to say. That would represent and leave a perception of easy to understand. I could get through this website instead of overly complicated for a tool that's pitching itself as easy. So you're trying to use components in my world of color, leave logo out for a minute, right? <laughs> like that thing's just an identifier. That's not going to say yeah. any of that. Um, the, the elements, the visual language, is it patterns? Is it textures? Is it illustrations? Is it photography, uh, typography usage? Then you get to the whole other side of the spectrum, which we would argue is as powerful, if not more powerful, which we did argue in the book, um, mm -hmm. which is the verbal identity. What are you saying? Does it align to the things that they're looking at and built in trying to build that perception further? You have to do that consistently for years so that people don't forget and the perception doesn't get skewed mm -hmm. and you have to live it as well through your values through your stance on social topics, if you choose to take them, that's where the ecosystem, like all of that has to create the perception. The people that can do that the most consistently from all, all sides will have the clearest perception and the most opportunity to win. The people that do it very fragmentedly, it don't matter if you get the best fucking logo. It literally doesn't even matter at that point. What, what does that even mean, right? Um, so that's i think that's where it becomes really hard because there's a lot of education in there even to the client side doesn't mean they're dumb mm -hmm. they're certainly not dumb they're building really successful businesses but they're still ingrained in the product right the product is the tool that the people pay for that's the thing it's like okay that's a part of the thing we got to build around that and not only do we have to build around it if you get a flashy website in six months that's also not everything you need right that like living it out through your values for the next three years and not going rogue on a marketing campaign two and a half years from now will affect if if you're successful um it's it's a challenge which is why we we do the like use the word like conquer your rebrand yeah. it's like it's big right it's like it's a it mountain big. that you're trying to climb let's not pretend it's not going to be hard yeah, and, and that's probably a good baseline because a lot of things are more challenging than we assume they're going to be. And, and it is a process of coming together. And, and this is another piece direct from your book. So I'm glad it tied in perfectly. This is um, from People That Care About People. A brand project is a partnership in every sense of the word. Two teams must come together to accomplish a shared goal, equally reliant on one another for success. And I do think that that. Yes, there can be hand-holding, but yes, it is this kind of thing that you have to achieve and conquer together. And I think that conquer is a very intentional and perfect word to use there. So important for the client-side team to understand they're coming in to do work. We are doing work together. They have to think of us as a, as a consultant as much as a service provider. Mm -hmm. right like we're here to consult and build with you but in order to consult you need to be a part of the game like we need you in here with us you couldn't just go to a home builder and say like oh, i really like like modern farmhouse style <laughs> and you just and, and then like they go rip like they'll get close um 
but it might have the wrong number of rooms and it might have some weird thing off the side that you're like, well, I didn't really want that. And it's like, you need to be a part of the process, right? They're showing you plans as they're going through. You're seeing the house as it's being framed out. Oh shit, this closet is actually smaller than I expected. All right, let's rework that as part of the process. You don't wait till the end. Um, unfortunately, I think what happens is sometimes, not not the majority, but sometimes clients really have an expectation of like, you're the experts. Thank you. Love that. Go do the thing and bring us back the magic. I don't have time. I'm too busy. Actually, this is why we've, this is why we like, um, are, are bringing you in. I don't have the time to be in this daily. And it's like, okay, we can still have success. Be way better. If you're with us week to week, we're talking about the work together every single week. Um, it's quite the hurdle to help people understand that. And you have to empathize. Like sometimes they literally can't be, if you're working with a publicly traded company, you can't have the CEO in your weekly meeting for an hour. That is to him. That is definitely not the most important use of his time. Right. He's like, I got to go on CNBC and like give our earnings report to our shareholders. I can't be like talking about color palettes. If that's true, then he needs to know how important it is for somebody else on his team to be a decision, his or her, uh, team to be a decision maker really empower that person then to make decisions on behalf of you if you can't be there um all that i'm saying all this actually because it's top of mind i just got out of a three-hour meeting this morning with um some people on my team and we've realized that we could do a better job at the front of the project even very specifically if i sit down and have kind of like an onboarding 30, 45 minute call with the CEO of the company that we're going to be working with to relay all this information. We relay a lot of it right now. And that's what we talk about in the book, the onboarding process. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is still through the PM department, which are strong, but it's not always to the CEO necessarily, right? It'll be to like the project drivers, which get to the CMO or even like a VP of marketing. So then you have multiple layers that are disconnected then already. So what will it be like if I can sit down at the highest level and have that heart-to-heart? Will that have an effect, long tail, on the rest of the entire project? I'll let you know in uh, 6 to 12 months. (laughs) And if it does, version 2 of the book is coming out because that needs to be added. (laughs) Amazing. But in that same chapter, I think it's, it's beautiful the way that you kind of break down one, the kind of core team, like uh, who are the project drivers, uh, but also like the team that you're going to be work with, like a project manager, the design team, strategist, et cetera. And then I also felt it was super helpful kind of guiding through the onboarding all the way through kind of like the design process to see it from a different perspective, because as a designer coming in and starting a business, some some of those project management, hospitality, uh, guidance kind of steps can often get swept under the rug and those are probably the most important parts of the process because everything is marketing and customer experience and sales in a way that you can't miss any one of those pieces otherwise you really don't have a business for long so in in the process i guess where are you seeing the challenges uh, of kind of start to finish so whether it's onboarding through completion, where are you finding that the most challenge is happening and how do you overcome that during those phases? 
the biggest obstacles in the project flow are often where shall i start <laughs> and that's not to imply anyways <laughs> it's not that I, that's not to imply there's a million challenges i'm trying to think of the most common the number one most common is the logo it's not mm. the beginning of the project that's where i was trying to should i go like in a linear fashion through a mm. project flow no i'm going to go with the biggest mountain that exists in every rebrand project from my experience the logo is a like can become an impasse mm. uh oh all right we got through the strategy okay we agree with it all yeah 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 okay we started to define our new clear uh purpose vision and mission stuff okay yeah yeah, yeah. and everyone's kind of like you know give me to design not everybody thankfully not anymore um but then you get to the logo bit and it's like i don't know i don't understand it what does it mean i hate it i don't I, it's like okay all right let's let's slow down for a second what is this meant to be does it matter if you hate it is a great question like it's it's not it's not for you uh that's a hard pill to swallow yeah. for a lot of clients it was for me as well we were making like the new focus lab rebrand stuff like even i had to get through that hurdle which i talk about in the book um so the logo is a big one so how do you help them past it you have to help them understand that the logo is not meant to do everything we just spent time talking about that uh, that goes a long way once you can help them realize that it is not meant to do that um and then time really is the other anecdote to that that helps when they see it for the third time for the fourth time and the system is beginning to be built around it and all these things they start to buy into it more because it's no longer the first time they've seen it mm -hmm. so the initial reaction is not shock it's like oh there's that thing it's growing on me it's growing on me you hear that a lot so we try to remind them okay hear you we'll do some refinements but like let's let it run its course we'll show you some new stuff but this is going to come back into the fold if at some point they just absolutely hate it you throw it out but not not right out of the gate if you think it's a strong contender i would also say it's really important how confident you come across when you're pitching it mm -hmm. if you're yeah. presenting the work and you're kind of like yeah hey, here's a b and c and they're like kind of cool yeah. you're totally leaving it up to get destroyed if you go in there with high conviction on one of them and you're like i'm so freaking jacked up on this thing the potential is unlimited i was only able to show you this much because I'm under a constraint of my one week deliverable, but I got all these other ideas. I got motion ideas on it. Trust me, this is the one. You're going to get such a higher buy-in rate by doing that. That's yeah. not everybody's like superpower, but it is worth mentioning. Uh, the other challenge, so let me step back then to the front of the project. Another big challenge is when the team is not aligned. Mm. Even on what the goals of the project ultimately are, if they feel like they even need a rebrand uh who's been shown the work and at what point are you trying to get consensus on the work or is there really like a convicted decision maker helping to drive the work or is it just being passed around everyone's like nah not really my thing but they got no context they didn't watch the video it was delivered with that becomes really challenging um beyond those two things everything is pretty easy actually mm. You know, people can get caught up on words and the verbal identity. Well, I don't, I don't really like this word. How about this other word? Sure, but that's normal. That's par for the course, and not hard to get past. Um, so yeah, I guess I would land without going super yeah. long on those two points. How, how do you bring those kind of um, folks that aren't aligned back into the fold? Is it just through 
proper handholding or trying to make sure that they're on the same page through just like more communication with that person? What tips or tricks do you have for kind of bringing someone who isn't aligned with goals or expectations back into the fold? So per the point I made before, I think there's a step we're missing, which if we're going to add now, which is you're going to get right to the, the point person, if you will, get right to the person with the most influence, the most perspective and, and get an understanding of, of why that is. Because sometimes what happens is when you're working on the projects, if there's four layers above them, let's call it a C-suite, then there's like a board, right? The, and the, mm -hmm. even right above them is a different boss before it gets to the C-suite. You're it's hard to get the true root issue. You might only get their perspective. Sorry, it's taking so long to get the feedback. You know, nope, I actually, you know, it, it got it got up to the board, and you know, they don't like it for this reason or that reason. It comes back all the way down through the ranks, and you play a little bit of middleman game. You kind of need to get right to the root of like what's what's going on here like what's the actual issue because without it you, you you get in this like spin cycle okay we're kind of back on a little bit oh we're off a little bit oh i need to educate a little bit more oh shit, we're kind of going sideways again and you'll get to the end hmm. but it feels a little bit like sliding into home and like ripping your leg to shit, as opposed to like trotting across home play and like the crowd's like cheering you on yeah uh and you you need like true insight into why that's happening sometimes the driver the point person regardless of their role is able to get that insight and has influence to whoever might um have the point of view that's really slowing things down i hate this send it back tell them to do a b and c you need that person in the room mm -hmm. if you really want to affect change you really really need that person in the room that's a tall task though, again, because now at the size of the clients that we're working with, it's like, hey, can you get the CEO in the call? And they're like, oh, he's really busy and he's had an offside for, for two weeks. And you're like, oh shit, we can't really like wait two more weeks to have this like critical conversation. If people are listening that are on a smaller scale and they can get those types of people in the room immediately, you've got to go right there. Don't even be shy about it. Lead with courage is one of our values. Just be mm -hmm. open and honest with what you're doing and how you're trying to help them and just ask questions. I keep hearing that this isn't working, but like, why? I don't know. I just, I don't really like the color green, but you know, it's not about what you like, right? Like we're not worried about what you like, refer back to the strategy. It's about what your customers are going to resonate with. It's about the perception we're trying to create and green will do that. Do you agree with that? Yes or no? You mm, know, mm -hmm. that type of conversation. And that courage aspect, that's super key because in order to kind of have that kind of civil discord that pushback you have to maybe step on their toes a little bit Not yes. their, you could go as far as hurt their feelings in some way but they'll get over it because it's for their brand and it's for the betterment of their company um how does one cultivate that courage where where would they start if they're let's say a, a freelancer who is more introverted and maybe like a year into their journey yeah uh for some people that is really hard for them to drum up that courage and i get it um what i would say is you have to do it as part of the job first of all so just like accept that part of it mm -hmm. and and once you do that you then have to ask yourself do i want to deal with this now or later 
it's kind of like, you know, I had, I had this thing going on downstairs in my basement in the wall and it looked like a water leak. And I was like, man, I don't really want to fuck around with that right now. And my wife's like, what's that? What's that little spot at the bottom of the wall? I'm like, I don't know. Probably a little bit of moisture. Not a big deal. I didn't deal with it. Right. A year later, I literally had to rip the whole wall out. A pipe had burst. It had been leaking forever. There was mold back there. Just deal with the problem in the moment. Don't let it fester. I would rather have a challenging conversation with the client in week two of the project than hope that things get better in the next five weeks and have a harder conversation at week nine in the project. The more you get to week nine and have that conversation, the faster you will come to the realization, let me have it now. Let me have it now. Yeah. You want you want death by a thousand paper cuts and then you get a bus at the end? <laughs> would you rather just like stand in front of the bus in week two get it solved and like get back to a normal flow. So you really got to pick your poison. And until you feel both of those pains, it could be harder too, to, to realize that, but man, feeling that pain, you will be like, oh, I want the other one. Yeah. Rip, rip yeah. the bandaid off. Definitely. Yeah. Be courageous in the moment. Just take that step. It's not about you. It's not about their likes. It's about the health of the project and aligning to the strategy that you agreed on and how that applies to the rest of the branding project right. and more. That's right. I do love right. that you are focusing as much on the intangibles. And what I mean by that is just the, not the, the visual aspect of the branding that you're delivering. And you're focusing on the intangibles just as much. So mission, voice, and plenty of other factors in there. Uh, I thought that was beautiful because I hadn't read that in a book, a uh, branding book at this point in my life. So I thought it would be nice to, yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos to that. I think it's perfect because it's the, it's the other half of the equation that is branding and brand strategy that a lot of people aren't talking about or maybe thinking about in depth. So from your perspective, what are the most important intangibles to really get right so that you can have a successful branding project? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, and, and I'm going to frame intangibles in two different ways. Yeah. Go Let for me it. start. I'm going to start with the first one, which is the easiest. You, anybody watching and listening, we hadn't talked about Figma and pixels and grids. The game that we're playing that's like table stakes and, mm -hmm. and it becomes irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. The intangibles is everything else we've been talking about from a client client side intangibles perspective. We've been talking about it now for what, over an hour or something, right? Like how do you educate a client when things are tough? How do you onboard them in so that they can start to build trust and understand what you're doing? That is the name of the game that we're actually playing. How can you pitch with conviction regardless of what color you picked. So when we think about intangibles from a business offering in like a business model perspective, that's generally how we're, how we're talking about intangibles. Mm. What are we bringing beyond pixels and words to a project? Um, but further to what you're saying, what other intangible aspects are we bringing even in the offering, in the service offering itself? So yes, we work with the clients up front and the strategy side to help them really narrow in and get aligned on like what is like the company ethos that we want to project and like why why does this company get up every day and what's a rally cry that we can create that the 
that the employees will give a shit about, right? Let's, let's not just focus on a statement that captures the best feature in the tool. Don't worry about that. That's like sub-level messaging stuff. Like, let's talk about the business and what it matters. Patagonia is talking about saving the planet, right? That's why people work there. Mm. I, I suspect some of those people don't even give a shit what their role is. They just know they're saving the planet, whether they're designing there or whatever else they would do there. I guess that's the only job I know of is design. That's the <laughs> only one I could come up with. Uh, uh, so, so yes, but you know, we could argue whether that's intangible or not, but it's not a pixel. Right? Mm -hmm. It's not a logo. So when people come to us and say, I need, I need a new website and we say, no, it's not a website issue. You got to come all the way back to the root of the issue, which is like, you got to think about brand and what you're projecting. And then that will make it onto the website. So yeah, those are some things I would, I would share as far as intangibles from both sides of the business because both are really 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 important in the early years it's about pixels and form fields and styling of elements it is about those things because that's what you know and you're trying to make money but as you evolve and then very specifically as your clients evolve you realize the game is bigger i think that is what people need to hear especially if they're trying to build an agency and especially one that is past like two to three people really trying to level up their business. I think that is the next step is thinking about those intangibles and all the services that you're pro providing, whether it's helping them get to the root of their mission, their vision, understanding their culture as a team and as a, as a company and, and how to project that perception into the world further. And it's not just the visual aspect. It's it's as much as rallying the team around this idea and this kind of brand identity, as much as it is the visual aspects and how that translates to customers, whether it's B2B or B2C. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So also think about it this way for the people listening and watching. If there's a rollout presentation that one of our clients are giving in presenting all this new work, I want them to focus primarily on a story and a narrative that is going to have their team jacked up before they even get to the first inclination of a, and here's our new logo, right? That better be like slide 34 or something, right? You need to talk about where the company's been, where it's going, why that matters, why that matters to them, how that's different, why this rebrand was necessary, what it's meant to achieve. There's so much narrative in there that people are going to be like, yes, yes, Yes. So by the time they see visuals, they're like, yeah, I don't even, quite honestly, I don't even give a shit what it is. As long as it, <laughs> it is that thing that you're saying it's meant to be over here, I don't care if it's soft edges, if it's really sharp, if it's circular, like no, they're not going to care because it's not ultimately what they should care about. Beautiful. And I want to be sensitive to your time, but this is such a beautiful piece and imagery here to change this perception i encourage people to think of brand the way that you might consider an orchestra it takes a full collection of instruments working in harmony to create a compelling sound similarly your brand relies on multiple elements to add layer after layer of resonance propelling your company's larger narrative in a way that connects way with and inspires customers followers and fans Interestingly, customers often cannot distinguish between the various moving parts, but can easily identify how that brand makes them feel. 
And that's kind of just what we were talking about, making them feel the way that they want to. And then all the visual stuff is just bonus. Yeah, if you start to get that resonance, you start to layer those instruments on top of each other, you start to get a one plus one equals three effect, two plus two equals nine effect, right? It's a compounding effect, but that's where that consistency in the whole ecosystem has to be the same and all drive towards the same thing. Nike does that really well. Patagonia again does that really well, right? They're not going off script somewhere and you're like, oh, kink in the armor. I actually don't believe them now anymore. House of Cards, whole thing falls apart. Not at all, right? They're bulletproof from every perspective on what they're doing and why it matters. And therefore they get a compounding effect on that. I have a couple of fun, fast questions. They can be answered fast if you got. Okay. Yeah. Rapid fire. Yeah. I love rapid fire. Yeah. Let's I'll go right to the wire. Fire. I'm a to the wire guy. My team probably right hates on. me. I'm the like classic show up one and a half minute late to every meeting. Uh, and I actually think I did that here. So apologies. <laughs> no, it's all good. I, I really don't care. As long as you show up, I'm happy. <laughs> but awesome. Let's do some rapid fire, some fast questions. Um, most importantly, how do you maintain that beautiful beard? I shouldn't, oh, be, God. I shouldn't be hitting uh, on you. My wife's in the other room, but. <laughs> uh, a simple answer. Whatever soap happens to be in the shower at that particular day is how it stays awesome. So apparently it's just genetics then. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. What's your favorite brand of hot sauce? Oh, damn. We have a Focus Lab hot sauce. Oh, but I no just, way. I just shifted out. It's not on my desk. Yes, sauce is an acronym that we use in the company, and that stands for Seek to Achieve Unforgettable Customer Experiences because we care about the customer experience. No shit, we just spent an hour talking about that. But we also have our own custom hot sauces with custom label. Outside of that, it's definitely Frank's. Okay, right on. I'm a Cholula guy, but it just goes well on everything. I can't get into Cholula. I don't know what it is. <laughs> what are you particularly excited about outside of work at the moment? Oh, uh, I love camping. We have mm. a, we got a camper during COVID and um, I love pulling that thing around and getting up into Vermont and to the coast of Connecticut on the beaches and camping. Uh, currently, as we speak, we are in September. Who knows when this will launch? I've got three days left in my running Palooza month that I've mm. had. My target was 100 miles this month. I'm at 115. Right on. Uh, I'm trying to get to 140. I'm, I'm going for like a big stretch goal. Nice. Yeah, a couple days left for yes. 35. Wait, oh, no, bad math. Um, yeah, what, what do I got? 25 in like five. three days? Like, not easy, totally doable. Yeah. Oh, totally doable, especially since you're training for a marathon. Or I'm putting that on you, maybe. <laughs> I, I, I'm mentally trying to convince myself that that's what I'm doing. I don't know if I'll follow through. Okay, fair enough. Um, what about Vermont for camping does it for you? Vermont is just my vibe. It's mm. just chill. Everything's laid back. It's not super duper honky tonk. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of got this hippy dippy chill vibe. And my demeanor, I might not dress that way, but my demeanor loves that. So yeah, Vermont. It's close it, too. Yeah, it's it's close. It's chill. It it is yeah. a beautiful place. Um, especially as a New England boy, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, yes. There you go. That's all of my Fast Furious questions for you, unless you want to do one more. I think I've said enough. People are probably sick of listening <laughs> to me at this point. <laughs> right on. Well, brand first, brand forever. 
Bill, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a ton for having me. So to everyone out there, remember that we are all legendary and have an amazing story of our own. So on the journey, take the time to be kind, grind, and unwind, and let's make the world a better and more creative place. Thank you so much, Bill. I hope that this inspires many, many out there to think beyond just the tangibles, to bring in the intangibles into their branding. Pick up a copy of the book. The book is Conquer Your Rebrand. You can get it on Amazon. It is a bestseller and it does deserve the praise. So pick it up. It's like 12 bucks or something. Everyone can Yeah, I think that. paperback's like 15 bucks. Yeah. yeah, nothing, nothing to it, but to do it. Awesome, Bill. Thanks so much for your time.